Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Man Who Knew Too Much by G.K. Chesterton. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 4. The Bottomless Well. In an oasis or green island in the red and yellow seas of sand that stretch beyond Europe towards the sunrise, there can be found a rather fantastic contrast, which is nonetheless typical of such a place, since international treaties have made it an outpost of the British occupation. The site is famous among archaeologists for something that is hardly a monument, but merely a hole in the ground. But it is a round shaft like that of a well, and probably a part of some great irrigation works of remote and disputed date, perhaps more ancient than anything in that ancient land. There is a green fringe of palm and prickly pear round the black mouth of the well, but nothing of the upper masonry remains except two bulky and battered stones, standing like pillars of a gateway of nowhere, in which some of the more transcendental archaeologists in certain moods at moonrise or sunset think they can trace the faint lines of figures or features of more than Babylonian monstrosity, while the more rationalistic archaeologists in the more rational hours of daylight see nothing but two shapeless rocks. It may have been noticed, however, that all Englishmen are not archaeologists. Many of those assembled in such a place for official and military purposes have hobbies other than archaeology. And it is a solemn fact that the English in this eastern exile have contrived to make a small golf links out of the green scrub and sand, with a comfortable clubhouse at one end of it and this primeval monument at the other. They did not actually use this archaic abyss as a bunker because it was by tradition unfathomable, and even for practical purposes unfathomed. Any sporting projectile sent into it might be counted most literally as a lost ball but they often sauntered round it in their interludes of talking and smoking cigarettes, and one of them had just come down from the clubhouse to find another gazing somewhat moodily into the well. Both the Englishmen wore light clothes and white pith helmets and puggrees, but there, for the most part, their resemblance ended, and they both almost simultaneously said the same word, but they said it on two totally different notes of the voice. Have you heard the news? asked the man from the club. Splendid. Splendid, replied the man by the well. But the first man pronounced the word as a young man might say it about a woman, and the second as an old man might say it about the weather. Not without sincerity, but certainly without fervour. 
and in this the tone of the two men was sufficiently typical of them. The first, who was a certain Captain Boyle, was of a bold and boyish type, dark and with a sort of native heat in his face that did not belong to the atmosphere of the East, but rather to the ardours and ambitions of the West. The other was an older man, and certainly an older resident, a civilian official, Horn Fisher, and his drooping eyelids and drooping light moustache, all the paradox of the Englishman in the East. He was much too hot to be anything but cool. Neither of them thought it necessary to mention what it was that was splendid. That would indeed have been superfluous conversation about something that everybody knew, a striking victory over a menacing combination of Turks and Arabs in the north, won by troops under the command of Lord Hastings, the veteran of so many striking victories, was already spread by the newspapers all over the empire, let alone to this small garrison so near the battlefield. Now, no other nation in the world could have done a thing like that, cried Captain Boyle emphatically. Horn Fisher was still looking silently into the well. A moment later he answered, we certainly have the art of unmaking mistakes. That's where the poor old Prussians went wrong. They could only make mistakes and stick to them. There is really a certain talent in unmaking a mistake. What do you mean? asked Boyle. What mistakes? Well, everybody knows it looked like biting off more than he could chew, replied Horn Fisher. It was a peculiarity of Mr. Fisher that he always said that everybody knew things which about one person in two million was ever allowed to hear of. And it was certainly jolly lucky that Travers turned up so well in the nick of time. Odd how often the right thing's been done for us by the second in command, even when a great man was first in command, like Colborne at Waterloo. It ought to add a whole province to the empire, observed the other. Well, I suppose the Zimmerns would have insisted on it as far as the canal, observed Fisher thoughtfully, though everybody knows adding provinces doesn't always pay much nowadays. Captain Boyle frowned in a slightly puzzled fashion. Being cloudily conscious of never having heard of the Zimmerns in his life, he could only remark stolidly, Well, one can't be a little Englander. Horn Fisher smiled, and he had a pleasant smile. Every man out here is a little Englander, he said. He wishes he were back in little England. I don't know what you're talking about, I'm afraid, said the younger man rather suspiciously. One would think you didn't really admire Hastings, or, or anything. I admire him no end, replied Fisher. He's by far the best man for this post. He understands the Muslims and can do anything with them. That's why I'm all against pushing Travers against him, merely because of this last affair. I really don't understand what you're driving at, said the other, frankly. Perhaps it isn't worth understanding, answered Fisher lightly. And anyhow, we needn't talk politics. Do you know the Arab legend about that well? I'm afraid I don't know much about Arab legends, said Boyle rather stiffly. That's rather a mistake, replied Fisher, especially from your point of view. Lord Hastings himself is an Arab legend. That is perhaps the very greatest thing he really is. If his reputation went, it would weaken us all over Asia and Africa. Well, the story about that hole in the ground that goes down nobody knows where has always fascinated me rather. It's Mohammedan in form now, but I shouldn't wonder if the tale is a long way older than Mohammed. It's all about somebody they call the Sultan Aladdin, not our friend of the lamp, of course, but rather like him in having to do with genii or giants or something of that sort. 
They say he commanded the giants to build him a sort of pagoda, rising higher and higher above all the stars. The utmost for the highest, as the people said when they built the Tower of Babel. But the builders of the Tower of Babel were quite modest and domestic people like mice compared with old Aladdin. They only wanted a tower that would reach heaven, a mere trifle. He wanted a tower that would pass heaven and rise above it, and go on rising for ever and ever. And Allah cast him down to earth with a thunderbolt, which sank into the earth, boring a hole deeper and deeper, till it made a well that was without a bottom, as the tower was to have been without a top. And down that inverted tower of darkness, the soul of the proud sultan is falling for ever and ever. What a queer chap you are, said Boyle. You talk as if a fellow could believe those fables. Perhaps I believe the moral and not the fable, answered Fisher. But here comes Lady Hastings. You know her, I think. The clubhouse on the golf links was used, of course, for many other purposes besides that of golf. It was the only social centre of the garrison beside the strictly military headquarters. It had a billiard room and a bar, and even an excellent reference library for those officers who were so perverse as to take their profession seriously. Among these was the great general himself, whose head of silver and face of bronze, like that of a brazen eagle, were often to be found bent over the charts and folios of the library. The great Lord Hastings believed in science and study, as in other severe ideals of life, and had given much paternal advice on the point to young Boyle, whose appearances in that place of research were rather more intermittent. It was from one of these snatches of study that the young man had just come out through the glass doors of the library onto the golf links. But, above all, the club was so appointed as to serve the social conveniences of ladies at least as much as gentlemen, and Lady Hastings was able to play the queen in such a society almost as much as in her own ballroom. She was eminently calculated, and, as some said, eminently inclined to play such a part. She was much younger than her husband, an attractive and sometimes dangerously attractive lady. And Mr. Horn Fisher looked after her a little sardonically as she swept away with the young soldier. Then his rather dreary eye strayed to the green and prickly growths round the well, growth of that curious cactus formation in which one thick leaf grows directly out of the other without stalk or twig. It gave his fanciful mind a sinister feeling of a blind growth without shape or purpose. A flower or shrub in the west grows to the blossom which is its crown and its content. But this was as if hands could grow out of hands or legs grow out of legs in a nightmare. Always adding a province to the empire, he said with a smile, and then added more sadly, but I doubt if I was right after all. A strong but genial voice broke in on his meditations, and he looked up and smiled, seeing the face of an old friend. The voice was, indeed, rather more genial than the face, which was at the first glance decidedly grim. It was a typically legal face, with angular jaws and heavy, grizzled eyebrows, and it belonged to an eminently legal character, though he was now attached in a semi-military capacity to the police of that wild district. Cuthbert Grain was perhaps more of a criminologist than either a lawyer or a policeman, but in his more barbarous surroundings, he had proved successful in turning himself into a practical combination of all three. 
the discovery of a whole series of strange oriental crimes stood to his credit but as few people were acquainted with or attracted to such a hobby or branch of knowledge his intellectual life was somewhat solitary among the few exceptions was horne fisher who had a curious capacity for talking to almost anybody about almost anything studying botany or is it archaeology inquired grain i shall never come to the end of your interests fisher i should say that what you don't know isn't worth knowing you're wrong replied fisher with a very unusual abruptness and even bitterness it's what i do know that isn't worth knowing all the seamy side of things all the secret reasons and rotten motives and bribery and blackmail they call politics i needn't be so proud of having been down all these sewers that i should brag about it to the little boys in the street what do you mean what's the matter with you asked his friend i never knew you taken like this before i'm ashamed of myself replied fisher i've just been throwing cold water on the enthusiasms of a boy even that explanation is hardly exhaustive observed the criminal expert damned newspaper nonsense the enthusiasms were of course continued fisher but i ought to know that at that age illusions can be ideals and they're better than the reality anyhow but there is one very ugly responsibility about jolting a young man out of the rut of the most rotten ideal and what may that be inquired his friend it's very apt to set him off with the same energy in a much worse direction answered fisher a pretty endless sort of direction a bottomless pit as deep as the bottomless well fisher did not see his friend until a fortnight later when he found himself in the garden at the back of the clubhouse on the opposite side from the links a garden heavily coloured and scented with sweet semi-tropical plants in the glow of a desert sunset two other men were with him the third being the now celebrated second-in-command familiar to everybody as tom travers a lean dark man who looked older than his years with a furrow in his brow and something morose about the very shape of his black moustache they had just been served with black coffee by the arab now officiating as the temporary servant of the club though he was a figure already familiar and even famous as the old servant of the general he went by the name of Said and was notable among other Semites for that unnatural length of his yellow face and height of his narrow forehead, which is sometimes seen among them, and gave an irrational impression of something sinister in spite of his agreeable smile. I never felt as if I could quite trust that fellow, said Grain, when the man had gone away. It's very unjust, I take it, for he was certainly devoted to Hastings and saved his life, they say but arabs are often like that loyal to one man i can't help feeling he might cut anybody else's throat and even do it treacherously well said travers with a rather sour smile so long as he leaves hastings alone the world won't mind much there was a rather embarrassing silence full of memories of the great battle and then horne fisher said quietly the newspapers aren't the world, Tom. Don't worry about them. Everybody in your world knows the truth well enough. I think we'd better not talk about the general just now, remarked Grain, for he's just coming out of the club. He's not coming here, said Fisher. He's only seeing his wife to the car. As he spoke, indeed, the lady came out to the steps of the club, followed by her husband, who then went swiftly in front of her to open the garden gate as he did so she turned back and spoke for a moment to a solitary man still sitting in a cane chair in the shadow of the doorway 
the only man left in the deserted club save for the three that lingered in the garden. Fisher peered for a moment into the shadow and saw that it was Captain Boyle. The next moment, rather to their surprise, the general reappeared and, remounting the steps, spoke a word or two to Boyle in his turn. Then he signalled to Said, who hurried up with two cups of coffee, and the two men re-entered the club, each carrying his cup in his hand. The next moment a gleam of white light in the growing darkness showed that the electric lamps had been turned on in the library beyond. Coffee and scientific researches, said Travers grimly. All the luxuries of learning and theoretical research. Well, I must be going, for I have my work to do as well. And he got up rather stiffly, saluted his companions, and strode away into the dusk. I only hope Boyle is sticking to scientific researches, said Horn Fisher. I'm not very comfortable about him myself, but let's talk about something else. They talked about something else longer than they probably imagined, until the tropical night had come and a splendid moon painted the whole scene with silver. But before it was bright enough to see by, Fisher had already noted that the lights in the library had been abruptly extinguished. He waited for the two men to come out by the garden entrance, but nobody came. They must have gone for a stroll on the links, he said. Very possibly, replied Grain, it's going to be a beautiful night. A moment or two after he had spoken, they heard a voice hailing them out of the shadow of the clubhouse, and were astonished to perceive Travers hurrying towards them, calling out as he came, I shall want your help, you fellows, he cried. There's something pretty bad out on the links. They found themselves plunging through the club's smoking-room and the library beyond, in complete darkness, mental as well as material. But Horn Fisher, in spite of his affectation of indifference, was a person of a curious and almost transcendental sensibility to atmospheres, and he already felt the presence of something more than an accident. He collided with a piece of furniture in the library, and almost shuddered with the shock, for the thing moved as he could never have fancied a piece of furniture moving seemed to move like a living thing, yielding and yet striking back. The next moment Grain had turned on the lights, and he saw he had only stumbled against one of the revolving bookstands that had swung round and struck him. But his involuntary recoil had revealed to him his own subconscious sense of something mysterious and monstrous. There were several of these revolving bookcases standing here and there about the library. On one of them stood the two cups of coffee, and on another a large open book. It was Budge's book on Egyptian hieroglyphics, with coloured plates of strange birds and gods, and even as he rushed past he was conscious of something odd about the fact that this, and not any work of military science, should be open in that place at that moment. He was even conscious of the gap in the well-lined bookshelf from which it had been taken, and it seemed almost to gape at him in an ugly fashion like a gap in the teeth of some sinister face. A run brought them in a few minutes to the other side of the ground, in front of the bottomless well, and a few yards from it, in a moonlight almost as broad as daylight, they saw what they had come to see. The great Lord Hastings lay prone on his face in a posture in which there was a touch of something strange and stiff, with one elbow erect above his body, the arm being doubled, and his big bony hand clutching the rank and ragged glass. A few feet away was Boyle, almost as motionless, supported on his hands and knees, and staring at the body. 
It might have been no more than shock and accident, but there was something ungainly and unnatural about the quadrupedal posture and the gaping face. It was as if his reason had fled from him. Behind there was nothing but the clear blue southern sky and the beginning of the desert, except for the two great broken stones in front of the well. And it was in such a light and atmosphere that men could fancy they traced in them enormous and evil faces looking down. Born Fisher stooped and touched the strong hand that was still clutching the grass, and it was as cold as a stone. He knelt by the body and was busy for a moment applying other tests. Then he rose again and said with a sort of confident despair, Lord Hastings is dead. There was a stony silence, and then Travers remarked gruffly, This is your department, Grain. I'll leave you to question Captain Boyle. I can make no sense of what he says. Boyle had pulled himself together and risen to his feet, but his face still wore an awful expression, making it like a new mask or the face of another man. I was looking at the well, he said, and when I turned he'd fallen down. Grain's face was very dark. As you say, this is my affair, he said. I must first ask you to help me carry him to the library and let me examine things thoroughly. When they deposited the body in the library, Grain turned to Fisher and said, in a voice that had recovered its fullness and confidence, I'm going to lock myself in and make a thorough examination first. I look to you to keep in touch with the others and make a preliminary examination of Boyle. I will talk to him later. And just telephone to headquarters for a policeman and let him come here at once and stand by till I want him. Without more words, the great criminal investigator went into the lighted library, shutting the door behind him, and Fisher, without replying, turned and began to talk quietly to Travers. It is curious, he said, that the thing should happen just in front of that place. It would certainly be very curious, replied Travers, if the place played any part in it. I think, replied Fisher, that the part it didn't play is more curious still. And with these apparently meaningless words he turned to the shaken Boyle and, taking his arm, began to walk him up and down in the moonlight, talking in low tones. Dawn had begun to break abrupt and white when Cuthbert Grain turned out the lights in the library and came out onto the links. Fisher was lounging about alone in his listless fashion, but the police messenger for whom he had sent was standing at attention in the background. I sent Boyle off with Travers, observed Fisher carelessly. He'll look after him, and he'd better have some sleep anyhow. Did you get anything out of him? asked Grain. Did he tell you what he and Hastings were doing? Yes, answered Fisher. He gave me a pretty clear account after all. He said that after Lady Hastings went off in the car, the general asked him to take coffee with him in the library and look up a point about local antiquities. He himself was beginning to look for Budge's book in one of the revolving bookstands when the general found it in one of the bookshelves on the wall. After looking at some of the plates, they went out, it would seem rather abruptly, onto the links and walked toward the old well. And while Boyle was looking into it, he heard a thud behind him, and turned round to find the general lying as we found him. He himself dropped on his knees to examine the body and then was paralysed with a sort of terror, and could not come nearer to it or touch it. But I think very little of that. People caught in a real shock of surprise are sometimes found in the queerest postures. 
Grain wore a grim smile of attention, and said, after a short silence, Well, he hasn't told you many lies. It's really a creditably clear and consistent account of what happened, with everything of importance left out. Have you discovered anything in there? asked Fisher. I have discovered everything, answered Grain. Fisher maintained a somewhat gloomy silence as the other resumed his explanation in quiet and assured tones. You were quite right, Fisher, when you said that young fellow was in danger of going down dark ways toward the pit. Whether or no, as you fancied, the jolt you gave to his view of the general had anything to do with it, he has not been treating the general well for some time. It's an unpleasant business, and I don't want to dwell on it, but it's pretty plain that his wife was not treating him well either. I don't know how far it went, but it went as far as concealment anyhow, for when Lady Hastings spoke to Boyle, it was to tell him she had hidden a note in the budge book in the library. The general overheard, or came somehow to know, and he went straight to the book and found it. He confronted Boyle with it, and they had a scene, of course. And Boyle was confronted with something else. He was confronted with an awful alternative, in which the life of one old man meant ruin, and his death meant triumph and even happiness. Well, observed Fisher at last, I don't blame him for not telling you the woman's part of the story, but how do you know about the letter? I found it on the general's body, answered Grain, but I found worse things than that. The body had stiffened in the way rather peculiar to poisons of a certain Asiatic sort. Then I examined the coffee cups, and I knew enough chemistry to find poison in the dregs of one of them. Now, the general went straight to the bookcase, leaving his cup of coffee on the bookstand in the middle of the room. While his back was turned, and Boyle was pretending to examine the bookstand, he was left alone with the coffee cup. The poison takes about ten minutes to act, and ten minutes' walk would bring them to the bottomless well. Yes, remarked Fisher, and what about the bottomless well? What has the bottomless well got to do with it? asked his friend. It has nothing to do with it, replied Fisher. That is what I find utterly confounding and incredible. And why should that particular hole in the ground have anything to do with it? It is a particular hole in your case, said Fisher, but I won't insist on that just now. By the way, there is another thing I ought to tell you. I said I sent Boyle away in charge of Travers. It would be just as true to say I sent Travers in charge of Boyle. You don't mean to say you suspect Tom Travers, cried the other. He was a deal bitterer against the general than Boyle ever was, observed Horn Fisher with a curious indifference. Man, you're not saying what you mean, cried Grain. I tell you, I found the poison in one of the coffee cups. There was always Said, of course, added Fisher, either of hatred or hire. We agreed he was capable of almost anything. And we agreed he was incapable of hurting his master, retorted Grain. Well, well, said Fisher amiably, I dare say you're right. But I should just like to have a look at the library and the coffee cups. He passed inside while Grain turned to the policeman in attendance and handed him a scribbled note to be telegraphed from headquarters. The man saluted and hurried off, and Grain, following his friend into the library, found him beside the bookstand in the middle of the room, on which were the empty cups. This is where Boyle looked for Budge, or pretended to look for him, according to your account, he said. 
As Fisher spoke, he bent down in a half-crouching attitude to look at the volumes in the low, revolving shelf, for the whole bookstand was not much higher than an ordinary table. The next moment he sprang up as if he had been stung. Oh, my God! he cried. Very few people, if any, have ever seen Mr. Horn Fisher behave as he behaved just then. He flashed a glance at the door, saw that the open window was nearer, and went out of it with a flying leap as if over a hurdle, and went racing across the turf in the track of the disappearing policeman. Grain, who stood staring after him, soon saw his tall, loose figure returning, restored to all its normal limpness of air and leisure. He was fanning himself slowly with a piece of paper, the telegram he had so violently intercepted. Lucky I stopped that, he observed. We must keep this affair as quiet as death. Hastings must die of apoplexy or heart disease. What on earth is the trouble? demanded the other investigator. The trouble is, said Fisher, that in a few days we should have had a very agreeable alternative of hanging an innocent man or knocking the British Empire to hell. Do you mean to say, asked Grain, that this infernal crime is not to be punished? Fisher looked at him steadily. It is already punished, he said. After a moment's pause, he went on. You reconstructed the crime with admirable skill, old chap, and nearly all you said was true. Two men with two coffee cups did go into the library, and did put their cups on the bookstand, and did go together to the well. And one of them was a murderer, and had put poison in the other's cup. But it was not done while Boyle was looking at the revolving bookcase. He did look at it, though, searching for the budge book with the note in it. But I fancy that Hastings had already moved it to the shelves on the wall. It was part of that grim game that he should find it first. Now, how does a man search a revolving bookcase? He does not generally hop all round it in a squatting attitude, like a frog. He simply gives it a touch and makes it revolve. He was frowning at the floor as he spoke, and there was a light under his heavy lids that was not often seen there. The mysticism that was buried deep under all the cynicism of his experience was awake and moving in the depths. His voice took unexpected turns and inflections, almost as if two men were speaking. That was what Boyle did. He barely touched the thing, and it went round as easily as the world goes round. Yes, very much as the world goes round, for the hand that turned it was not his. God, who turns the wheel of all the stars, touched that wheel and brought it full circle, that his dreadful justice might return. I'm beginning, said Grain slowly, to have some hazy and horrible idea of what you mean. It's very simple, said Fisher. When Boyle straightened himself from his stooping posture, something had happened which he had not noticed which his enemy had not noticed, which nobody had noticed. The two coffee-cups had exactly changed places. The rocky face of Grain seemed to have sustained a shock in silence. Not a line of it altered, but his voice, when it came out, was unexpectedly weakened. I see what you mean, he said, and, as you say, the less said about it the better. It was not the lover who tried to get rid of the husband, but the other thing. And a tale like that, about a man like that, would ruin us here. Had you any guess of this at the start? 
The bottomless well, as I told you, answered Fisher quietly. That was what stumped me from the start, not because it had anything to do with it, but because it had nothing to do with it. He paused a moment, as if choosing an approach, and then went on. When a man knows his enemy will be dead in ten minutes, and takes him to the edge of an unfathomable pit, he means to throw his body into it. What else should he do? A born fool would have the sense to do it, and Boyle is not a born fool. Well, why did not Boyle do it? The more I thought of it, the more I suspected that there was some mistake in the murder, so to speak. Somebody had taken somebody there to throw him in, and yet he was not thrown in. I had already an ugly, unformed idea of some substitution or reversal of parts. Then I stooped to turn the bookshelf myself, by accident, and I instantly knew everything, for I saw the two cups revolve once more like moons in the sky. After a pause, Cuthbert Grain said, And what are we to say to the newspapers? My friend Harold March is coming along from Cairo today, said Fisher. He's a very brilliant and successful journalist. But for all that, he's a thoroughly honourable man, so you must not tell him the truth. Half an hour later, Fisher was again walking to and fro in front of the clubhouse with Captain Boyle. The latter, by this time, with a very buffeted and bewildered air, perhaps a sadder and a wiser man. What about me, then? he was saying. Am I cleared? Am I not going to be cleared? I believe and hope, answered Fisher, that you are not going to be suspected, but you are certainly not going to be cleared. There must be no suspicion against him, and therefore no suspicion against you. Any suspicion against him, let alone such a story against him, would knock us endways from Malta to Mandalay. He was a hero as well as a holy terror among the Muslims. Indeed, you might almost call him a Muslim hero in the English service. Of course he got on with them, partly because of his own little dose of Eastern blood. He got it from his mother, the dancer from Damascus. Everybody knows that. Oh, repeated Boyle mechanically, staring at him with round eyes. Everybody knows that. I dare say there was a touch of it in his jealousy and ferocious vengeance, went on Fisher. But for all that, the crime would ruin us among the Arabs, all the more because it was something like a crime against hospitality. It's been hateful for you, and it's pretty horrid for me. But there are some things that damn well can't be done, and while I'm alive, that's one of them. What do you mean? asked Boyle, glancing at him curiously. Why should you, of all people, be so passionate about it? Orne Fisher looked at the young man with a baffling expression. I suppose, he said, it's because I'm a little Englander. I can never make out what you mean by that sort of thing, answered Boyle doubtfully. Do you think England is so little as all that, said Fisher, with a warmth in his cold voice, that it can't hold a man across a few thousand miles? You lectured me with a lot of ideal patriotism, my young friend, but it's practical patriotism now for you and me, with no lies to help it. You talked as if everything always went right with us, all over the world, in a triumphant crescendo culminating in Hastings. I tell you, everything has gone wrong with us here, except Hastings. He was the one name we had left to conjure with, and that mustn't go as well. No, by God, it's bad enough that a gang of infernal Jews should plant us here, where there's no earthly English interest to serve, and all hell beating up against us, simply because nosy Zimmern has lent money to half the cabinet. It's bad enough that an old pawnbroker from Baghdad should make us fight his battles, 
We can't fight with our right hand cut off. Our one score was Hastings and his victory, which was really somebody else's victory. Tom Travers has to suffer, and so have you. Then, after a moment's silence, he pointed toward the bottomless well and said, in a quieter tone, I told you that I didn't believe in the philosophy of the Tower of Aladdin. I don't believe in the empire growing until it reaches the sky. I don't believe in the Union Jack going up eternally like the Tower. But if you think I'm going to let the Union Jack go down and down eternally like the bottomless well, down into the blackness of the bottomless pit, down in defeat and derision, amid the jeers of the very Jews who have sucked us dry, no, I won't, and that's flat. Not if the Chancellor were blackmailed by twenty millionaires with their gutter rags. Not if the Prime Minister married twenty Yankee Jewesses. Not if Woodville and Carstairs had shares in twenty swindling mines. If the thing is really tottering, God help it, it mustn't be we who tip it over. Boyle was regarding him with a bewilderment that was almost fear, and had even a touch of distaste. Somehow, he said, there seems to be something rather horrid about the things you know. There is, replied Horne Fisher. I am not at all pleased with my small stock of knowledge and reflection. But as it is partly responsible for your not being hanged, I don't know that you need complain of it. And as if a little ashamed of his first boast, he turned and strolled away toward the bottomless well. End of chapter. The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 5 The Fad of the Fisherman A thing can sometimes be too extraordinary to be remembered. If it is clean out of the course of things, and has apparently no causes and no consequences, subsequent events do not recall it, and it remains only a subconscious thing, to be stirred by some accident long after. It drifts apart like a forgotten dream. And it was in the hour of many dreams, at daybreak and very soon after the end of dark, that such a strange sight was given to a man sculling a boat down a river in the West Country. The man was awake, indeed he considered himself rather wide awake, being the political journalist Harold March, on his way to interview various political celebrities in their country seats. But the thing he saw was so inconsequent that it might have been imaginary. It simply slipped past his mind and was lost in later and utterly different events. Nor did he even recover the memory till he had long afterward discovered the meaning. Pale mists of morning lay on the fields and the rushes along one margin of the river. Along the other side ran a wall of tawny brick almost overhanging the water. He had shipped his oars and was drifting for a moment with the stream when he turned his head and saw that the monotony of the long brick wall was broken by a bridge, rather an elegant eighteenth-century sort of bridge with little columns of white stone turning grey. There had been floods, and the river still stood very high, with dwarfish trees waist-deep in it, and rather a narrow arc of white dawn gleamed under the curve of the bridge. As his own boat went under the dark archway, he saw another boat coming toward him rowed by a man as solitary as himself. His posture prevented much being seen of him, but as he neared the bridge he stood up in the boat and turned round. He was already so close to the dark entry, however, that his whole figure was black against the morning light, 
and March could see nothing of his face except the end of two long whiskers or moustaches that gave something sinister to the silhouette, like horns in the wrong place. Even these details March would never have noticed, but for what happened in the same instant. As the man came under the low bridge, he made a leap at it and hung, with his legs dangling, letting the boat float away from under him. March had a momentary vision of two black kicking legs, then of one black kicking leg, and then of nothing except the eddying stream and the long perspective of the wall. But whenever he thought of it again, long afterwards, when he understood the story in which it figured, it always fixed in that one fantastic shape, as if those wild legs were a grotesque, graven ornament of the bridge itself in the manner of a gargoyle. At the moment he merely passed, staring down the stream. He could see no flying figure on the bridge, so it must have already fled. But he was half conscious of some faint significance in the fact that among the trees round the bridgehead opposite the wall he saw a lamp-post, and, beside the lamp-post, the broad blue back of an unconscious policeman. Even before reaching the shrine of his political pilgrimage he had many other things to think of besides the odd incident of the bridge. The management of a boat by a solitary man was not always easy, even on such a solitary stream. And indeed it was only by an unforeseen accident that he was solitary. A boat had been purchased and the whole expedition planned in conjunction with a friend, who had at the last moment been forced to alter all his arrangements. Harold March was to have travelled with his friend Horn Fisher on that inland voyage to Willowwood Place, where the Prime Minister was a guest at the moment. More and more people were hearing of Harold March, for his striking political articles were opening to him the doors of larger and larger salons. But he had never met the Prime Minister yet. Scarcely anybody among the general public had ever heard of Horne Fisher. But he had known the Prime Minister all his life. For these reasons, had the two taken the projected journey together, March might have been slightly disposed to hasten it, and Fisher vaguely content to lengthen it out. For Fisher was one of those people who are born knowing the Prime Minister. The knowledge seemed to have no very exhilarant effect, and in his case bore some resemblance to being born tired. But he was distinctly annoyed to receive, just as he was doing a little light packing of fishing tackle and cigars for the journey, a telegram from Willowwood asking him to come down at once by train, as the Prime Minister had to leave that night. Fisher knew that his friend the journalist could not possibly start till the next day, and he liked his friend the journalist and had looked forward to a few days on the river. He did not particularly like or dislike the Prime Minister, but he intensely disliked the alternative of a few hours in the train. Nevertheless, he accepted Prime Ministers as he accepted railway trains, as part of a system which he, at least, was not the revolutionist sent on earth to destroy. So he telephoned to March, asking him, with many apologetic courses and faint dams, to take the boat down the river as arranged, that they might meet at Willowwood by the time settled. Then he went outside and hailed a taxicab to take him to the railway station. There he paused at the bookstall to add to his light luggage a number of cheap murder stories, which he read with great pleasure, and without any premonition that he was about to walk into as strange a story in real life. A little before sunset he arrived, with his light suitcase in hand, before the gate of the long riverside gardens of Willowwood Place. 
one of the smaller seats of Sir Isaac Hook, the master of much shipping and many newspapers. He entered by the gate giving on the road at the opposite side to the river, but there was a mixed quality in all that watery landscape which perpetually reminded a traveller that the river was near. White gleams of water would shine suddenly like swords or spears in the green thickets. And even in the garden itself, divided into courts and curtained with hedges and high garden trees, there hung everywhere in the air the music of water. The first of the green courts which he entered appeared to be a somewhat neglected croquet lawn in which was a solitary young man playing croquet against himself. Yet he was not an enthusiast for the game, or even for the garden, and his sallow but well-featured face looked rather sullen than otherwise. He was only one of those young men who cannot support the burden of consciousness unless they are doing something, and whose conceptions of doing something are limited to a game of some kind. He was dark and well-dressed in a light holiday fashion, and Fisher recognised him at once as a young man named James Bullen, called for some unknown reason Bunker. He was the nephew of Sir Isaac, but what was much more important at that moment, he was also the private secretary of the Prime Minister. Hello, Bunker, observed Horn Fisher. You're the sort of man I wanted to see. Has your chief come down yet? He's only staying for dinner, replied Bullen, with his eye on the yellow ball. He's got a great speech tomorrow at Birmingham, and he's going straight through tonight. He's motoring himself there, driving the car, I mean. It's the one thing he's really proud of. You mean you're staying here with your uncle, like a good boy, replied Fisher. But what will the chief do at Birmingham without the epigrams whispered to him by his brilliant secretary? Don't you start ragging me, said the young man called Bunker. I'm only too glad not to go trailing after him. He doesn't know a thing about maps or money or hotels or anything, and I have to dance about like a courier. As for my uncle, as I'm supposed to come into the estate, it's only decent to be here sometimes. Very proper, replied the other. Well, I shall see you later on. And crossing the lawn, he passed out through a gap in the hedge. He was walking across the lawn toward the landing stage on the river, and still felt all around him, under the dome of golden evening, an old-world savour and reverberation in that river-haunted garden. The next square of turf which he crossed seemed at first sight quite deserted, till he saw in the twilight of trees in one corner of it a hammock, and in the hammock a man reading a newspaper and swinging one leg over the edge of the net. Him also he hailed by name and the man slipped to the ground and strolled forward. It seemed fated that he should feel something of the past in the accidents of that place, for the figure might well have been an early Victorian ghost revisiting the ghosts of the croquet hoops and mallets. It was the figure of an elderly man with long whiskers that looked almost fantastic, and a quaint and careful cut of collar and cravat. Having been a fashionable dandy forty years ago, he had managed to preserve the dandyism while ignoring the fashions. A white top hat lay beside the morning post in the hammock behind him. This was the Duke of Westmoreland, the relic of a family really some centuries old. And the antiquity was not heraldry, but history. Nobody knew better than Fisher how rare such noblemen are, in fact, and how numerous in fiction but whether the Duke owed the general respect he enjoyed to the genuineness of his pedigree, 
or to the fact that he owned vast amount of very valuable property, was a point about which Mr. Fisher's opinion might have been more interesting to discover. "'You were looking so comfortable,' said Fisher, "'that I thought you must be one of the servants. "'I'm looking for somebody to take this bag of mine. "'I haven't brought a man down as I came away in a hurry.' "'Nor have I, for that matter,' replied the Duke, with some pride. "'I never do. "'If there's one animal alive I loathe, it's a valet. "'I learned to dress myself at an early age, "'and was supposed to do it decently. "'I may be in my second childhood, "'but I have not got so far as being dressed like a child.' The Prime Minister hasn't brought a valet, he's brought a secretary instead, observed Fisher. Devilish inferior job. Didn't I hear that Harker was down here? He's over there on the landing stage, replied the Duke, indifferently, and resumed the study of the morning post. Fisher made his way beyond the last green wall of the garden, onto a sort of towing path looking on the river and a wooden island opposite. There, indeed, he saw a lean, dark figure with a stoop almost like that of a vulture. A posture well known in the law courts as that of Sir John Harker, the Attorney-General. His face was lined with headwork, for alone among the three idlers in the garden he was a man who had made his own way. And round his bald brow and hollow temples clung dull red hair, quite flat like plates of copper. I haven't seen my host yet, said Horne Fisher, in a slightly more serious tone than he had used to the others, but I suppose I shall meet him at dinner. You can see him now, but you can't meet him, answered Harker. He nodded his head toward one end of the island opposite, and looking steadily in the same direction, the other guest could see the dome of a bald head and the top of a fishing rod, both equally motionless, rising out of the tall undergrowth against the background of the stream beyond. The fisherman seemed to be seated against the stump of a tree, and facing toward the other bank, so that his face could not be seen, but the shape of his head was unmistakable. He doesn't like to be disturbed when he's fishing, continued Harker. It's a sort of fad of his to eat nothing but fish, and he's very proud of catching his own. Of course he's all for simplicity, like so many of these millionaires. He likes to come in saying he's worked for his daily bread like a labourer. Does he explain how he blows all the glass and stuffs all the upholstery, asked Fisher, and makes all the silver forks, and grows all the grapes and peaches, and designs all the patterns on the carpets? I've always heard he was a busy man. I don't think he mentioned it, answered the lawyer. What is the meaning of this social satire? Well, I'm a trifle tired, said Fisher, of the simple life and the strenuous life as lived by our little set. We're all really dependent in nearly everything, and we all make a fuss about being independent in something. The Prime Minister prides himself on doing without a chauffeur, but he can't do without a factotum and jack-of-all-trades. And poor old Bunker has to play the part of a universal genius, which God knows he was never meant for. The Duke prides himself on doing without a valet, but for all that he must give a lot of people an infernal lot of trouble to collect such extraordinary old clothes as he wears. He must have them looked up in the British Museum, or excavated out of the tombs. That white hat alone must require a sort of expedition fitted out to find it, like the North Pole. And here we have old Hook pretending to produce his own fish, when he couldn't produce his own fish knives or fish forks to eat it with. 
He may be simple about simple things like food, but you bet he's luxurious about luxurious things, especially little things. I don't include you. You've worked too hard to enjoy playing at work. I sometimes think, said Harker, that you conceal a horrid secret of being useful sometimes. Haven't you come down here to see number one before he goes to Birmingham? Horne Fisher answered in a lower voice. Yes, and I hope to be lucky enough to catch him before dinner. He's got to see Sir Isaac about something just afterwards. Hello, exclaimed Harker. Sir Isaac's finished his fishing. I know he prides himself on getting up at sunrise and going in at sunset. The old man on the island had indeed risen to his feet, facing round and showing a bush of grey beard with rather small, sunken features, but fierce eyebrows and keen, choleric eyes. Carefully carrying his fishing tackle, he was already making his way back to the mainland across a bridge of flat stepping stones, a little way down the shallow stream. Then he veered round, coming towards his guests and civilly saluting them. There were several fish in his basket, and he was in a good temper. Yes, he said, acknowledging Fisher's polite expression of surprise. I get up before anybody else in the house, I think. The early bird catches the worm. Unfortunately, said Harker, it is the early fish that catches the worm. But the early man catches the fish, replied the old man gruffly. But from what I hear, Sir Isaac, you're the late man too, interposed Fisher. You do with very little sleep. I never had much time for sleeping, answered Hook, and I shall have to be the late man tonight anyhow. The Prime Minister wants to have a talk, he tells me, and all things considered, I think we'd better be dressing for dinner. Dinner passed off that evening without a word of politics, and little enough but ceremonial trifles. The Prime Minister, Lord Merivale, who was a long, slim man with curly grey hair, was gravely complimentary to his host about his success as a fisherman and the skill and patience he displayed. The conversation flowed like the shallow stream through the stepping stones. It wants patience to wait for them, no doubt, said Sir Isaac, and skill to play them but I'm generally pretty lucky at it. Does a big fish ever break the line and get away? inquired the politician with respectful interest. Not the sort of line I use, answered Hook with satisfaction. I rather specialise in tackle, as a matter of fact. If he were strong enough to do that, he'd be strong enough to pull me into the river. A great loss to the community, said the Prime Minister, bowing. Fisher had listened to all these futilities with inward impatience, waiting for his own opportunity, and when the host rose he sprang to his feet with an alertness he rarely showed. He managed to catch Lord Merivale before Sir Isaac bore him off for the final interview. He had only a few words to say, but he wanted to get them said. He said, in a low voice as he opened the door for the Premier, I've seen Montmirail. He says that unless we protest immediately on behalf of Denmark, Sweden will certainly seize the ports. Lord Merivale nodded. I'm just going to hear what Hook has to say about it, he said. I imagine, said Fisher with a faint smile, that there is very little doubt what he will say about it. Merivale did not answer, but lounged gracefully toward the library, whither his host had already preceded him. The rest drifted toward the billiard room, Fisher merely remarking to the lawyer, They won't be long. We know they're practically in agreement. 
Hook entirely supports the Prime Minister, assented Harker. Or the Prime Minister entirely supports Hook, said Horne Fisher, and began idly to knock the balls about on the billiard table. Horne Fisher came down next morning in a late and leisurely fashion, as was his reprehensible habit. He had evidently no appetite for catching worms. But the other guests seemed to have felt a similar indifference, and they helped themselves to breakfast from the sideboard at intervals during the hours verging upon lunch. So it was not many hours later when the first sensation of that strange day came upon them. It came in the form of a young man with light hair and a candid expression, who came sculling down the river and disembarked at the landing stage. It was, in fact, no other than Mr. Harold March, whose journey had begun far away up the river in the earliest hours of that day. He arrived late in the afternoon, having stopped for tea in a large riverside town, and he had a pink evening paper sticking out of his pocket. He fell on the riverside garden like a quiet and well-behaved thunderbolt. But he was a thunderbolt without knowing it. The first exchange of salutations and introductions was commonplace enough, and consisted indeed of the inevitable repetition of excuses for the eccentric seclusion of the host. He had gone fishing again, of course, and must not be disturbed till the appointed hour, though he sat within a stone's throw of where they stood. You see, it's his only hobby, observed Harker apologetically, and after all it's his own house, and he's very hospitable in other ways. I'm rather afraid, said Fisher, in a lower voice, that it's becoming more of a mania than a hobby. I know how it is when a man of that age begins to collect things, if it's only collecting those rotten little river fish. You remember Talbot's uncle with his toothpicks and poor old Buzzy and the waste of cigar ashes? Hook has done a lot of big things in his time. The great deal in the Swedish timber trade and the peace conference at Chicago? but I doubt whether he cares now for any of those big things as he cares for those little fish. Oh, come, come, protested the Attorney General. You'll make Mr. March think he's come to call on a lunatic. Believe me, Hook only does it for fun, like any other sport, only he's of the kind that takes his fun sadly. But I bet if there were big news about timber or shipping he would drop his fun and his fish all right. Well, I wonder, said Horn Fisher, looking sleepily at the island in the river. By the way, is there any news of anything? asked Harker of Harold March. I see you've got an evening paper, one of those enterprising evening papers that come out in the morning. The beginning of Lord Merivale's Birmingham speech, replied March, handing him the paper. It's only a paragraph, but it seemed to me rather good. Harker took the paper, flapped and refolded it, and looked at the stop press news. It was, as March had said, only a paragraph, but it was a paragraph that had a peculiar effect on Sir John Harker. His lowering brows lifted with a flicker, and his eyes blinked, and for a moment his leathery jaw was loosened. He looked in some odd fashion like a very old man. Then, hardening his voice and handing the paper to Fisher without a tremor, he simply said, Well, here's a chance for the bet. You've got your big news to disturb the old man's fishing. Horne Fisher was looking at the paper, and over his more languid and less expressive features a change also seemed to pass. Even that little paragraph had two or three large headlines, and his eyes encountered Sensational Warning to Sweden, and We Shall Protest. 
"'What the devil?' he said, and his words softened first to a whisper and then a whistle. "'We must tell old Hook at once, or he'll never forgive us,' said Harker. "'He'll probably want to see number one instantly, though it may be too late now. "'I'm going across to him at once. I bet I'll make him forget his fish, anyhow.' And turning his back, he made his way hurriedly along the riverside to the causeway of flat stones. March was staring at Fisher in amazement at the effect his pink paper had produced. "'What does it all mean?' he cried. "'I always supposed we should protest in defence of the Danish ports, for their sakes and our own. What is all this botheration about Sir Isaac and the rest of you? Do you think it bad news?' "'Bad news,' repeated Fisher, with a sort of soft emphasis beyond expression. "'Is it as bad as all that?' asked his friend at last. "'As bad as all that?' repeated Fisher. "'Why, of course, it's as good as it can be. It's great news. It's glorious news. That's where the devil of it comes in, to knock us all silly. It's admirable. It's inestimable. It's also quite incredible.' He gazed again at the grey and green colours of the island and the river, and his rather dreary eye travelled slowly round to the hedges and the lawns. "'I felt this garden was a sort of dream,' he said, "'and I suppose I must be dreaming.' but there is grass growing and water moving, and something impossible has happened. Even as he spoke, the dark figure with a stoop like a vulture appeared in the gap of the hedge just above him. "'You've won your bet,' said Harker, in a harsh and almost croaking voice. "'The old fool cares for nothing but fishing. He cursed me and told me he would talk no politics.' "'I thought it might be so,' said Fisher modestly. "'What are you going to do next?' I shall use the old idiot's telephone, anyhow, replied the lawyer. I must find out exactly what has happened. I've got to speak for the government myself tomorrow. And he hurried away toward the house. In the silence that followed, a very bewildering silence so far as March was concerned, they saw the quaint figure of the Duke of Westmoreland with his white hat and whiskers approaching them across the garden. Fisher instantly stepped toward him with the pink paper in his hand, and with a few words, pointed out the apocalyptic paragraph. The Duke, who had been walking slowly, stood quite still, and for some seconds he looked like a tailor's dummy standing and staring outside some antiquated shop. Then March heard his voice, and it was high and almost hysterical. But he must see it, he must be made to understand, it cannot have been put to him properly. Then, with a certain recovery of fullness and even pomposity in the voice, I shall go and tell him myself. Among the queer incidents of that afternoon, March always remembered something almost comical about the clear picture of the old gentleman in his wonderful white hat, carefully stepping from stone to stone across the river, like a figure crossing the traffic in Piccadilly. Then he disappeared behind the trees of the island, and March and Fisher turned to meet the Attorney-General, who was coming out of the house with a visage of grim assurance. Everybody is saying, he said, that the Prime Minister has made the greatest speech of his life, peroration and loud and prolonged cheers. Corrupt financiers and heroic peasants, we will not desert Denmark again. Fisher nodded and turned away toward the towing path, where he saw the Duke returning with a rather dazed expression. In answer to questions, he said in a husky and confidential voice, I really think our poor friend cannot be himself. He refused to listen. He uh, suggested that I might frighten the fish. 
a keen ear might have detected a murmur from Mr. Fisher on the subject of a white hat, but Sir John Harker struck it more decisively. Fisher was quite right. I didn't believe it myself, but it's quite clear that the old fellow is fixed on his fishing notion by now. If the house caught fire behind him, he would hardly move till sunset. Fisher had continued his stroll toward the higher embanked ground of the towing path, and he now swept a long and searching gaze, not toward the island, but toward the distant wooded heights that were the walls of the valley. An evening sky as clear as that of the previous day was settling down all over the dim landscape, but toward the west it was now red rather than gold. There was scarcely any sound but the monotonous music of the river. Then came the sound of a half-stifled exclamation from Horn Fisher, and Harold March looked up at him in wonder. "'You spoke of bad news,' said Fisher. "'Well, there is really bad news now. I'm afraid this is a bad business.' "'What bad news do you mean?' asked his friend, conscious of something strange and sinister in his voice. "'The sun has set,' answered Fisher. He went on with the air of one conscious of having said something fatal. We must get somebody to go across whom he will really listen to. He may be mad, but there's method in his madness. There nearly always is method in madness. It's what drives men mad, being methodical. And he never goes on sitting there after sunset, with the whole place getting dark. Where's his nephew? I believe he's really fond of his nephew. Look, cried March abruptly, why he's been across already. There he is coming back. And looking up the river once more, they saw, dark against the sunset reflections, the figure of James Bullen stepping hastily and rather clumsily from stone to stone. Once he slipped on a stone with a slight splash. When he rejoined the group on the bank, his olive face was unnaturally pale. The other four men had already gathered on the same spot, and almost simultaneously were calling out to him, What does he say now? Nothing. He says nothing. Fisher looked at the young man steadily for a moment. Then he started from his immobility, and, making a motion to march to follow him, himself strode down to the river crossing. In a few moments they were on the little beaten track that ran round the wooded island to the other side of it, where the fisherman sat. Then they stood and looked at him, without a word. Sir Isaac Hook was still sitting propped up against the stump of the tree, and that for the best of reasons. A length of his own infallible fishing line was twisted and tightened, twice round his throat, then twice round the wooden prop behind him. The leading investigator ran forward and touched the fisherman's hand, and it was as cold as a fish. The sun has set, said Horn Fisher, in the same terrible tones, and he will never see it rise again. Ten minutes afterwards the five men, shaken by such a shock, were again together in the garden, looking at one another with white but watchful faces. The lawyer seemed the most alert of the group. He was articulate, if somewhat abrupt. We must leave the body as it is, and telephone for the police, he said. I think my own authority will stretch to examining the servants and the poor fellow's papers to see if there is anything that concerns them. Of course, none of you gentlemen must leave this place. Perhaps there was something in his rapid and rigorous legality that suggested the closing of a net or trap. Anyhow, young Bullen suddenly broke down, or perhaps blew up, 
and his voice was like an explosion in the silent garden. I never touched him, he cried. I swear I had nothing to do with it. Who said you had? demanded Harker with a hard eye. Why do you cry out before you're hurt? Because you all look at me like that, cried the young man angrily. Do you think I don't know you're always talking about my damned debts and expectations? Rather to March's surprise, Fisher had drawn away from this first collision, leading the Duke with him to another part of the garden. When he was out of earshot of the others, he said with a curious simplicity of manner, Westmoreland, I'm going straight to the point. Well, said the other, staring at him stolidly. You have a motive for killing him, said Fisher. The Duke continued to stare, but he seemed unable to speak. I hope you had a motive for killing him, continued Fisher mildly. You see, it's rather a curious situation. If you have a motive for murdering, you probably didn't murder. But if you hadn't any motive, why then perhaps you did. What on earth are you talking about? demanded the Duke violently. It's quite simple, said Fisher. When you went across, he was either alive or dead. If he was alive, it might be you who killed him. Or why should you have held your tongue about his death? But if he was dead, and you had a reason for killing him, you might have held your tongue for fear of being accused. Then after a silence, he added abstractedly, Cyprus is a beautiful place, I believe, romantic scenery and romantic people, very intoxicating for a young man. The Duke suddenly clenched his hands and said thickly, Well, I had a motive. Then you're all right, said Fisher, holding out his hand with an air of huge relief. I was pretty sure you wouldn't really do it. You had a fright when you saw it done, as was only natural, like a bad dream come true, wasn't it? While this curious conversation was passing, Harker had gone into the house, disregarding the demonstrations of the sulky nephew, and came back presently with a new air of animation and a sheaf of papers in his hand. I've telephoned for the police, he said, stopping to speak to Fisher, but I think I've done most of their work for them. I believe I've found out the truth. There's a paper here, he stopped, for Fisher was looking at him with a singular expression, and it was Fisher who spoke next. Are there any papers that are not there, I wonder, I mean, that are not there now? After a pause, he added, let us have the cards on the table. When you went through his papers in such a hurry, Harker, weren't you looking for something to... to make sure it shouldn't be found? Harker did not turn a red hair on his hard head, but he looked at the other out of the corners of his eyes. And, I suppose, went on Fisher smoothly, that is why you, too, told us lies about having found Hook alive. You knew there was something to show that you might have killed him, and you didn't dare tell us he was killed. But, believe me, it's much better to be honest now. Harker's haggard face suddenly lit up as if with infernal flames. Honest, he cried, it's not so damn fine of you fellows to be honest. You're all born with silver spoons in your mouths and then you swagger about with everlasting virtue because you haven't got other people's spoons in your pockets. But I was born in a Pimlico lodging-house, and I had to make my spoon, and there'd be plenty to say I only spoiled a horn or an honest man. And if a struggling man staggers a bit over the line in his youth, in the lower parts of the law which are pretty dingy anyhow, there's always some old vampire to hang on to him all his life for it. 
Guatemalan Golcondas, wasn't it? said Fisher sympathetically. Harker suddenly shuddered. Then he said, I believe you must know everything, like God Almighty. I know too much, said Horn Fisher, and all the wrong things. The other three men were drawing nearer to them, but before they came too near, Harker said in a voice that had recovered all its firmness, Yes, I did destroy a paper, but I really did find a paper too, and I believe that it clears us all. Very well, said Fisher, in a louder and more cheerful tone, let us all have the benefit of it. On the very top of Sir Isaac's papers, explained Harker, there was a threatening letter from a man named Hugo. It threatens to kill our unfortunate friend very much in the way that he was actually killed. It is a wild letter full of taunts, you can see it for yourselves, but it makes a particular point of poor Hook's habit of fishing from the island. Above all, the man professes to be writing from a boat, and since we alone went across to him, and he smiled in a rather ugly fashion, the crime must have been committed by a man passing in a boat. Why, dear me, cried the Duke, with something almost amounting to animation. Why, I remember the man called Hugo quite well. He was a sort of body-servant and bodyguard of Sir Isaac. You see, Sir Isaac was in some fear of assault. He was, he was not very popular with several people. Hugo was discharged after some row or other. But I remember him well. He was a great big Hungarian fellow with great moustaches that stood out on each side of his face. A door opened in the darkness of Harold March's memory, or rather oblivion, and showed a shining landscape like that of a lost dream. It was rather a waterscape than a landscape, a thing of flooded meadows and low trees and the dark archway of a bridge. And for one instant he saw again the man with moustaches like dark horns leap up onto the bridge and disappear. Good heavens, he cried, why, I met the murderer this morning. Horn Fisher and Harold March had their day on the river after all. The little group broke up when the police arrived. They declared that the coincidence of March's evidence had cleared the whole company, and clinched the case against the flying Hugo. Whether that Hungarian fugitive would ever be caught appeared to Horn Fisher to be highly doubtful. Nor can it be pretended that he displayed any very demoniac detective energy in the matter, as he leaned back in the boat cushions, smoking and watching the swaying reeds slide past. It was a very good notion to hop up onto the bridge, he said. An empty boat means very little. He hasn't been seen to land on either bank, and he's walked off the bridge without walking onto it, so to speak. He's got twenty-four hours start, his moustaches will disappear, and then he will disappear. I think there is every hope of his escape. Hope, repeated March, and stopped sculling for an instant. Yes, hope, repeated the other. To begin with, I am not going to be exactly consumed with Corsican revenge because somebody has killed Hook. Perhaps you may guess by this time what Hook was. A damned blood-sucking blackmailer was that simple, strenuous, self-made captain of industry. He had secrets against nearly everybody. One against poor old Westmoreland about an early marriage in Cyprus that might have put the Duchess in a queer position and one against Harker about some flutter with his client's money when he was a young solicitor. That's why they went to pieces when they found him murdered, of course. They felt as if they'd done it in a dream. But I admit I have another reason for not wanting our Hungarian friend actually hanged for the murder. And what is that? asked his friend. Only that he didn't commit the murder, answered Fisher. 
Harold March laid down the oars and let the boat drift for a moment. Do you know, I was half expecting something like that, he said. It was quite irrational, but it was hanging about in the atmosphere like thunder in the air. On the contrary, it's finding Hugo guilty that's irrational, replied Fisher. Don't you see that they're condemning him for the very reason for which they acquit everybody else? Harker and Westmoreland were silent because they found him murdered, and knew there were papers that made them look like the murderers. Well, so did Hugo find him murdered, and so did Hugo know there was a paper that would make him look like the murderer. He had written it himself the day before. But in that case, said March, frowning, at what sort of unearthly hour in the morning was the murder really committed? It was barely daylight when I met him at the bridge, and that's some way above the island. The answer is very simple, replied Fisher. The crime was not committed in the morning. The crime was not committed on the island. March stared at the shining water without replying, but Fisher resumed like one who has been asked a question. Every intelligent murder involves taking advantage of some one uncommon feature in a common situation. The feature here was the fancy of old Hook for being the first man up every morning, his fixed routine as an angler, and his annoyance at being disturbed. The murderer strangled him in his own house after dinner on the night before, carried his corpse with all his fishing tackle across the stream in the dead of night, tied him to the tree, and left him there under the stars. It was a dead man who sat fishing there all day. Then the murderer went back to the house, or rather to the garage, and went off in his motor-car. The murderer drove his own motor-car. Fisher glanced at his friend's face and went on. You look horrified, and the thing is horrible, but other things are horrible too. If some obscure man had been hag-ridden by a blackmailer, and had his family life ruined, you wouldn't think the murder of his persecutor the most inexcusable of murders. Is it any worse when a whole great nation is set free as well as a family? By this warning to Sweden we shall probably prevent war and not precipitate it, and save many thousand lives rather more valuable than the life of that viper. Oh, I'm not talking sophistry or seriously justifying the thing, but the slavery that held him and his country was a thousand times less justifiable. If I'd really been sharp, I should have guessed it from his smooth, deadly smiling at dinner that night. Do you remember that silly talk about how old Isaac could always play his fish? In a pretty hellish sense, he was a fisher of men. Harold March took the oars and began to row again. I remember, he said, and about how a big fish might break the line and get away. End of chapter The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 6 The Hole in the Wall Two men, the one an architect and the other an archaeologist, met on the steps of the great house at Priors Park, and their host, Lord Bulmer, in his breezy way, thought it natural to introduce them. It must be confessed that he was hazy as well as breezy, and had no very clear connection in his mind beyond the sense that an architect and an archaeologist begin with the same series of letters. The world must remain in a reverent doubt as to whether he would, on the same principles, have presented a diplomatist 
to a dipsomaniac, or a ratiocinator to a rat-catcher. He was a big, fair, bull-necked young man, abounding in outward gestures, unconsciously flapping his gloves and flourishing his stick. "'You two ought to have something to talk about,' he said cheerfully, "'old buildings and all that sort of thing. This is rather an old building, by the way, though I say it who shouldn't. I must ask you to excuse me a moment. I've got to go and see about the cards for this Christmas romp my sister's arranging. We hope to see you all there, of course. Juliet wants it to be a fancy dress affair, abbots and crusaders and all that. My ancestors, I suppose, after all. I trust the abbot was not an ancestor, said the archaeological gentleman with a smile. Only a sort of great-uncle, I imagine, answered the other, laughing. Then his rather rambling eye rolled round the ordered landscape in front of the house. An artificial sheet of water ornamented with an antiquated nymph in the centre, and surrounded by a park of tall trees, now grey and black and frosty, for it was in the depth of a severe winter. It's getting jolly cold, his lordship continued. My sister hopes we shall have some skating as well as dancing. If the crusaders come in full armour, said the other, you must be careful not to drown your ancestors. Oh, there's no fear of that, answered Bulmer. This precious lake of ours is not two feet deep anywhere. And with one of his flourishing gestures, he stuck his stick into the water to demonstrate its shallowness. They could see the short end bent in the water, so that he seemed for a moment to lean his large weight on a breaking staff. The worst you can expect is to see an abbot sit down rather suddenly, he added, turning away. Well, au revoir, I'll let you know about it later. The archaeologist and the architect were left on the great stone steps, smiling at each other. But whatever their common interests, they presented a considerable personal contrast, and the fanciful might even have found some contradiction in each considered individually. The former, a Mr. James Haddo, came from a drowsy den in the Inns of Court, full of leather and parchment, for the law was his profession, and history only his hobby. He was, indeed, among other things, the solicitor and agent of the Prior's Park estate. But he himself was far from drowsy, and seemed remarkably wide awake, with shrewd and prominent blue eyes, and red hair brushed as neatly as his very neat costume. The latter, whose name was Leonard Crane, came straight from a crude and almost cockney office of builders and house agents in the neighbouring suburb sunning itself at the end of a new row of jerry-built houses, with plans in very bright colours and notices in very large letters. But a serious observer, at a second glance, might have seen in his eyes something of that shining sleep that is called vision. And his yellow hair, while not affectedly long, was unaffectedly untidy. It was a manifest, if melancholy, truth that the architect was an artist but the artistic temperament was far from explaining him. There was something else about him that was not definable, but which some even felt to be dangerous. Despite his dreaminess, he would sometimes surprise his friends with arts and even sports apart from his ordinary life, like memories of some previous existence. On this occasion, nevertheless, he hastened to disclaim any authority on the other man's hobby. I mustn't appear on false pretenses, he said with a smile. I hardly even know what an archaeologist is. 
except that a rather rusty remnant of Greek suggested that he is a man who studies old things. Yes, replied Haddo grimly, an archaeologist is a man who studies old things and finds they are new. Crane looked at him steadily for a moment and then smiled again. Dare one suggest, he said, that some of the things we have been talking about are among the old things that turn out not to be old? His companion also was silent for a moment, and the smile on his rugged face was fainter as he replied quietly, The wall round the park is really old. The one gate in it is Gothic, and I cannot find any trace of destruction or restoration. But the house and the estate generally, well, the romantic ideas read into these things are often rather recent romances, things almost like fashionable novels. For instance, the very name of this place, Prior's Park, makes everybody think of it as a moonlit medieval abbey. I dare say the spiritualists by this time have discovered the ghost of a monk there, but according to the only authoritative study of the matter I can find, the place was simply called Prior's, as any rural place is called Podger's. It was the house of a Mr. Pryor, a farmhouse, probably, that stood here at some time or other, and was a local landmark. Oh, there are a great many examples of the same thing, here and everywhere else. This suburb of ours used to be a village, and because some of the people slurred the name and pronounced it Hollywell, many a minor poet indulged in fancies about a holy well, with spells and fairies and all the rest of it filling the suburban drawing-rooms with Celtic twilight. Whereas anyone acquainted with the facts knows that Hollinwall simply means the hole in the wall, and probably referred to some quite trivial accident. That's what I mean when I say that we don't so much find old things as we find new ones. Crane seemed to have grown somewhat inattentive to the little lecture on antiquities and novelties, and the cause of his restlessness was soon apparent, and indeed approaching. Lord Bulmer's sister, Juliet Bray, was coming slowly across the lawn, accompanied by one gentleman and followed by two others. The young architect was in the illogical condition of mind in which he preferred three to one. The man walking with the lady was no other than the eminent Prince Borodino, who was at least as famous as a distinguished diplomatist ought to be in the interests of what is called secret diplomacy. He had been paying a round of visits at various English country houses, and exactly what he was doing for diplomacy at Prior's Park was as much a secret as any diplomatist could desire. The obvious thing to say of his appearance was that he would have been extremely handsome if he had not been entirely bald. But, indeed, that would itself be a rather bald way of putting it, Fantastic as it sounds, it would fit the case better to say that people would have been surprised to see hair growing on him, as surprised as if they had found hair growing on the bust of a Roman emperor. His tall figure was buttoned up in a tight-waisted fashion that rather accentuated his potential bulk, and he wore a red flower in his buttonhole. Of the two men walking behind, one was also bald, but in a more partial and also a more premature fashion, for his drooping moustache was still yellow, and if his eyes were somewhat heavy, it was with languor and not with age. It was Horn Fisher, and he was talking as easily and idly about everything as he always did. 
His companion was a more striking and even more sinister figure, and he had the added importance of being Lord Bulmer's oldest and most intimate friend. He was generally known with a severe simplicity as Mr. Brain. But it was understood that he had been a judge and police official in India, and that he had enemies who had represented his measures against crime as themselves almost criminal. He was a brown skeleton of a man, with dark, deep, sunken eyes, and a black moustache that hid the meaning of his mouth. Though he had the look of one wasted by some tropical disease, his movements were much more alert than those of his lounging companion. "'It's all settled,' announced the lady, with great animation, when they came within hailing distance. "'You've all got to put on masquerade things, and very likely skates as well. Though the prince says that they don't go with it, but we don't care about that. It's freezing already, and we don't often get such a chance in England. Even in India we don't exactly skate all the year round, observed Mr. Brain. And even Italy is not primarily associated with ice, said the Italian. Italy is primarily associated with ices, remarked Mr. Horne Fisher. I mean with ice cream men. Most people in this country imagine that Italy is entirely populated with ice-cream men and organ-grinders. There certainly are a lot of them. Perhaps they're an invading army in disguise. How do you know they're not the secret emissaries of our diplomacy? asked the prince, with a slightly scornful smile. An army of organ-grinders might pick up hints, and their monkeys might pick up all sorts of things. The organs are an organised fact, said the flippant Mr. Fisher. Well, I've known it pretty cold before now in Italy, and even in India, up on the Himalayan slopes. The ice on our own little round pond will be quite cosy by comparison. Juliet Bray was an attractive lady, with dark hair and eyebrows and dancing eyes, and there was a geniality and even generosity in her rather imperious ways. In most matters she could command her brother, though that nobleman, like many other men of vague ideas, was not without a touch of the bully when he was at bay. She could certainly command her guests, even to the extent of decking out the most respectable and reluctant of them with her medieval masquerade. And it really seemed as if she could command the elements also, like a witch, for the weather steadily hardened and sharpened. That night the ice of the lake, glimmering in the moonlight, was like a marble floor, and they had begun to dance and skate on it before it was dark. Priors Park, or more properly the surrounding district of Hollinwall, was a country seat that had become a suburb. Having once had only a dependent village at its doors, it now found outside all its doors the signals of the expansion of London. Mr. Haddow, who was engaged in historical researches, both in the library and the locality, could find little assistance in the latter. He had already realised from the documents that Priors Park had originally been something like Priors Farm, named after some local figure, but the new social conditions were all against his tracing the story by its traditions. Had any of the real rustics remained, he would probably have found some lingering legend of Mr. Prior however remote he might be. But the new nomadic population of clerks and artisans constantly shifting their homes from one suburb to another, or their children from one school to another, could have no corporate continuity. 
They had all the forgetfulness of history that goes everywhere with the extension of education. Nevertheless, when he came out of the library next morning and saw the wintry trees standing round the frozen pond like a black forest, he felt he might well have been far in the depths of the country. The old wall running round the park kept that enclosure itself still entirely rural and romantic, and one could easily imagine that the depths of that dark forest faded away indefinitely into distant vales and hills. The grey and black and silver of the wintry wood were all the more severe or sombre as a contrast to the coloured carnival groups that already stood on and around the frozen pool, for the house-party had already flung themselves impatiently into fancy dress, and the lawyer, with his neat black suit and red hair, was the only modern figure among them. "'Aren't you going to dress up?' asked Juliet, indignantly, shaking at him a horned and towering blue headdress of the fourteenth century, which framed her face very becomingly, fantastic as it was. Everybody here has to be in the Middle Ages. Even Mr. Brain has put on a sort of brown dressing-gown and says he's a monk. And Mr. Fisher got hold of some old potato sacks in the kitchen and sewed them together. He's supposed to be a monk, too. As to the prince, he's perfectly glorious, in great crimson robes, as a cardinal. He looks as if he could poison everybody. You simply must be something. I will be something later in the day, he replied. At present I am nothing but an antiquary and an attorney. I have to see your brother presently about some legal business, and also some local investigations he asked me to make. I must look a little like a steward when I give an account of my stewardship. Oh, but my brother has dressed up, cried the girl, very much so. No end, if I may say so. Why, he's bearing down on you now in all his glory. The noble lord was indeed marching toward them in a magnificent sixteenth-century costume of purple and gold, with a gold-hilted sword and a plumed cap, and manners to match. Indeed, there was something more than his usual expansiveness of bodily action in his appearance at that moment. It almost seemed, so to speak, that the plumes of his hat had gone to his head. He flapped his great gold-lined cloak like the wings of a fairy king in a pantomime. He even drew his sword with a flourish and waved it about as he did his walking-stick. In the light of after events there seemed to be something monstrous and ominous about that exuberance, something of the spirit that is called Fay. At the time it merely crossed a few people's minds that he might possibly be drunk. As he strode towards his sister, the first figure he passed was that of Leonard Crane, clad in Lincoln Green with the horn and baldric and sword appropriate to Robin Hood. For he was standing nearest to the lady, where, indeed, he might have been found during a disproportionate part of the time. He had displayed one of his buried talents in the matter of skating, and now that the skating was over seemed disposed to prolong the partnership. The boisterous Bulmer playfully made a pass at him with his drawn sword, going forward with the lunge in the proper fencing fashion and making a somewhat too familiar Shakespearean quotation about a rodent and a Venetian coin. Probably in Crane also there was a subdued excitement just then. Anyhow, in one flash he had drawn his sword and parried, and then, suddenly, to the surprise of everyone, Bulmer's weapon seemed to spring out of his hand into the air and rolled away on the ringing ice. "'Well, I never,' said the lady, as if with justifiable indignation. You never told me you could fence, too. 
Bulmer put up his sword with an air rather bewildered than annoyed, which increased the impression of something irresponsible in his mood at the moment. Then he turned rather abruptly to his lawyer, saying, We can settle up about the estate after dinner. I've missed nearly all the skating as it is, and I doubt if the ice will hold till tomorrow night. I think I shall get up early and have a spin by myself. You won't be disturbed with my company, said Horn Fisher, in his weary fashion. If I have to begin the day with ice, in the American fashion, I prefer it in smaller quantities. But no early hours for me in December. The early bird catches the cold. Oh, I shan't die of catching cold, answered Bulmer, and laughed. A considerable group of the skating party had consisted of the guests staying at the house, and the rest had tailed off in twos and threes some time before most of the guests began to retire for the night. Neighbours, always invited to Priors Park on such occasions, went back to their own houses in motors or on foot. The legal and archaeological gentleman had returned to the inns of court by a late train to get a paper called for during his consultation with his client. And most of the other guests were drifting and lingering at various stages on their way up to bed. Horn Fisher, as if to deprive himself of any excuse for his refusal of early rising, had been the first to retire to his room. But, sleepy as he looked, he couldn't sleep. He had picked up from a table the book of antiquarian topography, in which Haddo had found his first hints about the origin of the local name, and, being a man with a quiet and quaint capacity for being interested in anything, he began to read it steadily, making notes now and then of details on which his previous reading left him with a certain doubt about his present conclusions. His room was the one nearest to the lake in the centre of the woods and was therefore the quietest, and none of the last echoes of the evening's festivity could reach him. He had followed carefully the argument which established the derivation from Mr. Pryor's farm and the hole in the wall, and disposed of any fashionable fancy about monks and magic wells, when he began to be conscious of a noise audible in the frozen silence of the night. It was not a particularly loud noise, but it seemed to consist of a series of thuds or heavy blows, such as might be struck on a wooden door by a man seeking to enter. They were followed by something like a faint creak or crack, as if the obstacle had either been opened or had given way. He opened his own bedroom door and listened, but as he heard talk and laughter all over the lower floors, he had no reason to fear that a summons would be neglected or the house left without protection. He went to his open window, looking out over the frozen pond and the moonlit statue in the middle of their circle of darkling woods, and listened again. But silence had returned to that silent place, and after straining his ears for a considerable time, he could hear nothing but the solitary hoot of a distant departing train. Then he reminded himself how many nameless noises can be heard by the wakeful during the most ordinary night and, shrugging his shoulders, went wearily to bed. He awoke suddenly and sat up in bed with his ears filled as with thunder, with the throbbing echoes of a rending cry. He remained rigid for a moment and then sprang out of bed, throwing on the loose gown of sacking he had worn all day. He went first to the window, which was open, but covered with a thick curtain, so that his room was still completely dark. 
but when he tossed the curtain aside and put his head out, he saw that a grey and silver daybreak had already appeared behind the black woods that surrounded the little lake, and that was all that he did see. Though the sound had certainly come in through the open window from this direction, the whole scene was still and empty under the morning light as under the moonlight. Then the long, rather lackadaisical hand he had laid on a window-sill gripped it tighter, as if to master a tremor, and his peering blue eyes grew bleak with fear. It may seem that his emotion was exaggerated and needless, considering the effort of common sense by which he had conquered his nervousness about the noise on the previous night. But that had been a very different sort of noise. It might have been made by half a hundred things, from the chopping of wood to the breaking of bottles. There was only one thing in nature from which could come the sound that echoed through the dark house at daybreak. It was the awful articulate voice of man, and it was something worse, for he knew what man. He knew also that it had been a shout for help. It seemed to him that he had heard the very word. But the word, short as it was, had been swallowed up, as if the man had been stifled or snatched away, even as he spoke. Only the mocking reverberations of it remained even in his memory. But he had no doubt of the original voice. He had no doubt that the great bull's voice of Francis Bray, Baron Bulmer, had been heard for the last time between the darkness and the lifting dawn. How long he stood there he never knew but he was startled into life by the first living thing that he saw stirring in that half-frozen landscape. Along the path beside the lake, and immediately under his window, a figure was walking slowly and softly, but with great composure. A stately figure in robes of a splendid scarlet. It was the Italian prince, still in his cardinal's costume. Most of the company had indeed lived in their costumes for the last day or two, and Fisher himself had assumed his frock of sacking as a convenient dressing-gown. But there seemed, nevertheless, something unusually finished and formal in the way of an early bird about this magnificent red cockatoo. It was as if the early bird had been up all night. "'What's the matter?' he called sharply, leaning out of the window, and the Italian turned up his great yellow face like a mask of brass. We had better discuss it downstairs, said Prince Borodino. Fisher ran downstairs and encountered the great red-robed figure entering the doorway and blocking the entrance with his bulk. Did you hear that cry? demanded Fisher. I heard a noise and I came out, answered the diplomatist, and his face was too dark in the shadow for its expression to be read. It was Bulmer's voice, insisted Fisher. I'll swear it was Bulmer's voice. Did you know him well? asked the other. The question seemed irrelevant, though it was not illogical, and Fisher could only answer in a random fashion that he knew Lord Bulmer only slightly. Nobody seems to have known him well, continued the Italian, in level tones. Nobody except that man Brain. Brain is rather older than Bulmer, but I fancy they shared a good many secrets. Fisher moved abruptly, as if waking from a momentary trance, and said in a new and more vigorous voice, But look here, hadn't we better get outside and see if anything has happened? The ice seems to be thawing, said the other, almost with indifference. 
When they emerged from the house, dark stains and stars in the grey field of ice did indeed indicate that the frost was breaking up, as their host had prophesied the day before, and the very memory of yesterday brought back the mystery of today. He knew there would be a thaw, observed the prince. He went out skating quite early on purpose. Did he call out because he landed in the water, do you think? Fisher looked puzzled. Bulmer was the last man to bellow like that because he got his boots wet. And that's all he could do here. The water would hardly come up to the calf of a man of his size. You can see the flat weeds on the floor of the lake, as if it were through a thin pane of glass. No, if Bulmer had only broken the ice, he wouldn't have said much at the moment, though possibly a good deal afterwards. We should have found him stamping and damming up and down this path and calling for clean boots. Let us hope we shall find him as happily employed, remarked the diplomatist. In that case, the voice must have come out of the wood. I'll swear it didn't come out of the house, said Fisher, and the two disappeared together into the twilight of wintry trees. The plantation stood dark against the fiery colours of sunrise, a black fringe having that feathery appearance which makes trees, when they are bare, the very reverse of rugged. Hours and hours afterwards, when the same dense but delicate margin was dark against the greenish colours opposite the sunset, the search thus begun at sunrise had not come to an end. By successive stages and to slowly gathering groups of the company, it became apparent that the most extraordinary of all gaps had appeared in the party. The guests could find no trace of their host anywhere. The servants reported that his bed had been slept in and his skates and his fancy costume were gone, as if he had risen early for the purpose he had himself avowed. But from the top of the house to the bottom, from the walls round the park to the pond in the centre, there was no trace of Lord Bulmer dead or alive. Horn Fisher realised that a chilling premonition had already prevented him from expecting to find the man alive. But his bald brow was wrinkled over an entirely new and unnatural problem, in not finding the man at all. He considered the possibility of Bulmer having gone off of his own accord, for some reason, but after fully weighing it, he finally dismissed it. It was inconsistent with the unmistakable voice heard at daybreak, and with many other practical obstacles. There was only one gateway in the ancient and lofty wall round the small park. The lodgekeeper kept it locked till late in the morning, and the lodgekeeper had seen no one pass. Fisher was fairly sure that he had before him a mathematical problem in an enclosed space. His instinct had been from the first so attuned to the tragedy that it would have been almost a relief to him to find the corpse. He would have been grieved, but not horrified, to come on the nobleman's body dangling from one of his own trees as from a gibbet, or floating in his own pool like a pallid weed. What horrified him was to find nothing. He soon became conscious that he was not alone, even in his most individual and isolated experiments. He often found a figure following him like his shadow, in silent and almost secret clearings in the plantation, or outlying nooks and corners of the old wall. The dark moustached mouth was as mute as the deep eyes were mobile, darting incessantly hither and thither, but it was clear that brain of the Indian police had taken up the trail like an old hunter after a tiger. Seeing that he was the only personal friend of the vanished man, this seemed natural enough, and Fisher resolved to deal frankly with him. 
This silence is rather a social strain, he said. May I break the ice by talking about the weather? Which, by the way, has already broken the ice. I know that breaking the ice might be a rather melancholy metaphor in this case. I don't think so, replied Brain shortly. I don't fancy the ice had much to do with it. I don't see how it could. What would you propose doing? asked Fisher. Well, we've sent for the authorities, of course. But I hope to find something out before they come, replied the Anglo-Indian. I can't say I have much hope from police methods in this country. Too much red tape, habeas corpus, and that sort of thing. What we want is to see that nobody bolts. The nearest we could get to it would be to collect the company and count them, so to speak. Nobody's left lately except that lawyer who was poking about for antiquities. Oh, he's out of it. He left last night, answered the other. Eight hours after Bulmer's chauffeur saw his lawyer off by the train, I heard Bulmer's own voice as plain as I hear yours now. I suppose you don't believe in spirits, said the man from India. After a pause, he added, There's somebody else I should like to find, before we go after a fellow with an alibi in the inner temple. What's become of that fellow in green, the architect, dressed up as a forester? I haven't seen him about. Mr. Brain managed to secure his assembly of all the distracted company before the arrival of the police. But when he first began to comment once more on the young architect's delay in putting in an appearance, he found himself in the presence of a minor mystery, and a psychological development of an entirely unexpected kind. Juliet Bray had confronted the catastrophe of her brother's disappearance with a sombre stoicism, in which there was, perhaps, more paralysis than pain. But when the other question came to the surface, she was both agitated and angry. We don't want to jump to any conclusions about anybody, Brain was saying in his staccato style. But we should like to know a little more about Mr. Crane. Nobody seems to know much about him or where he comes from. And it seems a sort of coincidence that yesterday he actually crossed swords with Paul Bulmer, and could have struck him too, since he showed himself the better swordsman. Of course, that may be an accident and couldn't possibly be called a case against anybody. But then we haven't the means to make a real case against anybody. Till the police come, we are only a pack of very amateur sleuth-hounds. And I think you're a pack of snobs, said Juliet. Because Mr. Crane is a genius who's made his own way, you try to suggest he's a murderer without daring to say so. Because he wore a toy sword and happened to know how to use it, you want us to believe he used it like a bloodthirsty maniac for no reason in the world. And because he could have hit my brother and didn't, you deduce that he did. That's the sort of way you argue. And as for his having disappeared, you're wrong in that as you are in everything else, for here he comes. And indeed, the green figure of the fictitious Robin Hood slowly detached itself from the grey background of the trees and came toward them as she spoke. He approached the group slowly, but with composure. But he was decidedly pale, and the eyes of Brain and Fisher had already taken in one detail of the green-clad figure more clearly than all the rest. The horn still swung from his baldric, but the sword was gone. Rather to the surprise of the company, Brain did not follow up the question thus suggested, but, while retaining an air of leading the inquiry, had also an appearance of changing the subject. 
Now we're all assembled, he observed quietly. There is a question I want to ask to begin with. Did anybody here actually see Lord Bulmer this morning? Leonard Crane turned his pale face round the circle of faces till he came to Juliet's. Then he compressed his lips a little and said, Yes, I saw him. Was he alive and well? asked Brain quickly. How was he dressed? He appeared exceedingly well, replied Crane, with a curious intonation. He was dressed as he was yesterday, in that purple costume copied from the portrait of his ancestor in the sixteenth century. He had his skates in his hand. And his sword at his side, I suppose, asked the questioner. Where is your own sword, Mr. Crane? I threw it away. In the singular silence that ensued, the train of thoughts in many minds became involuntarily a series of coloured pictures. They had grown used to their fanciful garments looking more gay and gorgeous against the dark grey and streaky silver of the forest, so that the moving figures glowed like stained-glass saints walking. The effect had been more fitting because so many of them had idly parodied pontifical or monastic dress, but the most arresting attitude that remained in their memories had been anything but merely monastic. That of the moment when the figure in bright green and the other in vivid violet had for a moment made a silver cross of their crossing swords. Even when it was a jest it had been something of a drama, and it was a strange and sinister thought that in the grey daybreak the same figures in the same posture might have been repeated as a tragedy. Did you quarrel with him? asked Brain suddenly. Yes, replied the immovable man in green, or he quarrelled with me. Why did he quarrel with you? asked the investigator and Leonard Crane made no reply. Horne Fisher, curiously enough, had only given half his attention to this crucial cross-examination. His heavy-lidded eyes had languidly followed the figure of Prince Borodino, who at this stage had strolled away towards the fringe of the wood, and, after a pause as of meditation, had disappeared into the darkness of the trees. He was recalled from his irrelevance by the voice of Juliet Bray, which rang out with an altogether new note of decision. If that is the difficulty, it had best be cleared up. I am engaged to Mr. Crane, and when we told my brother, he did not approve of it. That's all. Neither Brain nor Fisher exhibited any surprise, but the former added quietly, Except, I suppose, that he and your brother went off into the wood to discuss it, where Mr. Crane mislaid his sword, not to mention his companion. And, may I ask, inquired Crane, with a certain flicker of mockery passing over his pallid features, what I am supposed to have done with either of them? Let us adopt the cheerful thesis that I am a murderer. It has yet to be shown that I am a magician. If I ran your unfortunate friend through the body, what did I do with the body? Did I have it carried away by seven flying dragons, or was it merely a trifling matter of turning it into a milk-white hind? It is no occasion for sneering, said the Anglo-Indian judge, with abrupt authority. It doesn't make it look better for you that you can joke about the loss. Fisher's dreamy and even dreary eye was still on the edge of the wood behind, and he became conscious of masses of dark red, like a stormy sunset cloud glowing through the dark grey network of the thin trees, and the prince in his cardinal's robes re-emerged onto the pathway. Brain had had half a notion that the prince might have gone to look for the lost rapier, 
but when he reappeared he was carrying in his hand not a sword, but an axe. The incongruity between the masquerade and the mystery had created a curious psychological atmosphere. At first they had all felt horribly ashamed at being caught in the foolish disguises of a festival, by an event that had only too much the character of a funeral. Many of them would have already gone back and dressed in clothes that were more funereal, or at least more formal. But somehow, at the moment, this seemed like a second masquerade, more artificial and frivolous than the first. And as they reconciled themselves to their ridiculous trappings, a curious sensation had come over some of them, notably over the more sensitive, like Crane and Fisher and Juliet, but in some degree over everybody except the practical Mr. Brain. It was almost as if they were the ghosts of their own ancestors haunting that dark wood and dismal lake and playing some old part that they only half remembered. The movements of those coloured figures seemed to mean something that had been settled long before, like a silent heraldry. Acts, attitudes, external objects were accepted as an allegory, even without the key, and they knew when a crisis had come, when they did not know what it was. And somehow they knew subconsciously that the whole tale had taken a new and terrible turn when they saw the prince stand in the gap of the gaunt trees, in his robes of angry crimson, and with his lowering face of bronze, bearing in his hand a new shape of death. They could not have named a reason, but the two swords seemed indeed to have become toy swords, and the whole tale of them broken and tossed away like a toy. Borodino looked like the old-world headsman, clad in terrible red, and carrying the axe for the execution of the criminal. And the criminal was not Crane. Mr. Brain of the Indian police was glaring at the new object. And it was a moment or two before he spoke, harshly and almost hoarsely. What are you doing with that? he asked. Seems to be a woodman's chopper. A natural association of ideas, observed Horn Fisher. If you meet a cat in the wood, you think it's a wild cat, though it may have just strolled from the drawing-room sofa. As a matter of fact, I happen to know that is not a woodman's chopper. It's the kitchen chopper or meat axe or something like that that somebody has thrown away in the wood. I saw it in the kitchen myself when I was getting the potato sacks with which I reconstructed a medieval hermit. All the same, it's not without interest, remarked the prince, holding out the instrument to Fisher, who took it and examined it carefully. A butcher's cleaver that has done butcher's work. It was certainly the instrument of the crime, assented Fisher in a low voice. Brain was staring at the dull blue gleam of the axe head with fierce and fascinated eyes. I don't understand you, he said. There is no, there are no marks on it. It has shed no blood, answered Fisher, but for all that it has committed a crime. This is as near as the criminal came to the crime when he committed it. What do you mean? He was not there when he did it, explained Fisher. It's a poor sort of murderer who can't murder people when he isn't there. You seem to be talking merely for the sake of mystification, said Brain. If you have any practical advice to give, you might as well make it intelligible. The only practical advice I can suggest, said Fisher thoughtfully, is a little research into local topography and nomenclature. 
They say there used to be a Mr. Pryor who had a farm in this neighbourhood. I think some details about the domestic life of the late Mr. Pryor would throw a light on this terrible business. And you have nothing more immediate than your topography to offer, said Brain with a sneer, to help me avenge my friend. Well, said Fisher, I should find out the truth about the hole in the wall. That night, at the close of a stormy twilight and under a strong west wind that followed the breaking of the frost, Leonard Crane was wending his way in a wild rotary walk round and round the high continuous wall that enclosed the little wood. He was driven by a desperate idea of solving for himself the riddle that had clouded his reputation, and already even threatened his liberty. The police authorities, now in charge of the inquiry, had not arrested him, but he knew well enough that if he tried to move far afield, he would be instantly arrested. Horn Fisher's fragmentary hints, though he had refused to expand them as yet, had stirred the artistic temperament of the architect to a sort of wild analysis, and he was resolved to read the hieroglyph upside down and every way until it made sense. If it was something connected with a hole in the wall, he would find the hole in the wall. But as a matter of fact, he was unable to find the faintest crack in the wall. His professional knowledge told him that the masonry was all of one workmanship and one date, and except for the regular entrance which threw no light on the mystery, he found nothing suggesting any sort of hiding place or means of escape. Walking a narrow path between the winding wall and the wild eastward bend and sweep of the grey and feathery trees, seeing shifting gleams of a lost sunset winking almost like lightning as the clouds of tempest scudded across the sky and, mingling with the first faint blue light from a slowly strengthened moon behind him, he began to feel his head going round as his heels were going round and round the blind recurrent barrier. He had thoughts on the border of thought, fancies about a fourth dimension which was itself a hole to hide anything, of seeing everything from a new angle out of a new window in the senses, or of some mystical light and transparency, like the new rays of chemistry in which he could see Bulmer's body horrible and glaring, floating in a lurid halo over the woods and the wall. He was haunted also with the hint which somehow seemed to be equally horrifying that it all had something to do with Mr. Pryor. There seemed even to be something creepy in the fact that he was always respectfully referred to as Mr. Pryor, and that it was in the domestic life of the dead farmer that he had been bidden to seek the seed of these dreadful things. As a matter of fact, he had found that no local inquiries had revealed anything at all about the Pryor family. The moonlight had broadened and brightened, the wind had driven off the clouds and itself died fitfully away when he came round again to the artificial lake in front of the house. For some reason it looked a very artificial lake. Indeed the whole scene was like a classical landscape with a touch of Watteau. The Palladian façade of the house pale in the moon and the same silver touching the very pagan and naked marble nymph in the middle of the pond. Rather to his surprise, he found another figure there beside the statue, sitting almost equally motionless, and the same silver pencil traced the wrinkled brow and patient face of Horn Fisher. Still dressed as a hermit, and apparently practising something of the solitude of a hermit. Nevertheless, he looked up at Leonard Crane and smiled, almost as if he had expected him. 
Look here, said Crane, planting himself in front of him. Can you tell me anything about this business? I shall soon have to tell everybody everything about it, replied Fisher, but I've no objection to telling you something first. But, to begin with, will you tell me something? What really happened when you met Bulmer this morning? You did throw away your sword, but you didn't kill him. I didn't kill him because I threw away my sword, said the other. I did it on purpose, or I'm not sure what might have happened. After a pause, he went on quietly. The late Lord Bulmer was a very breezy gentleman, extremely breezy. He was very genial with his inferiors, and would have his lawyer and his architect staying in his house for all sorts of holidays and amusements. But there was another side to him, which they found out when they tried to be his equals. When I told him that his sister and I were engaged, something happened which I simply can't and won't describe. It seemed to me like some monstrous upheaval of madness. But I suppose the truth is painfully simple. There is such a thing as the coarseness of a gentleman. And it is the most horrible thing in humanity. I know, said Fisher, the Renaissance nobles of the Tudor time were like that. It is odd that you should say that, Crane went on, for while we were talking there came on me a curious feeling that we were repeating some scene of the past, and that I was really some outlaw, found in the woods like Robin Hood, and that he had really stepped in all his plumes and purple out of the picture frame of the ancestral portrait. Anyhow, he was the man in possession, and he neither feared God nor regarded man. I defied him, of course, and walked away. I might really have killed him if I had not walked away. Yes, said Fisher, nodding. His ancestor was in possession, and he was in possession. And this is the end of the story. It all fits in. Fits in with what? cried his companion with sudden impatience. I can't make head or tail of it. You tell me to look for the secret in the hole in the wall, but I can't find any hole in the wall. There isn't any, said Fisher. That's the secret. After reflecting a moment, he added, unless you call it a hole in the wall of the world, look, here, I'll tell you if you like, but I'm afraid it involves an introduction. You've got to understand one of the tricks of the modern mind, a tendency that most people obey without noticing it. In the village or suburb outside there's an inn with the sign of St. George and the Dragon. Now, suppose I went about telling everybody that this was only a corruption of King George and the Dragoon. Scores of people would believe it without any inquiry from a vague feeling that it's probable because it's prosaic. It turns something romantic and legendary into something recent and ordinary. And that somehow makes it sound rational, though it's unsupported by reason. Of course, some people would have the sense to remember having seen St. George in old Italian pictures and French romances, but a good many wouldn't think about it at all. They would just swallow the scepticism because it was scepticism. Modern intelligence won't accept anything on authority, but it will accept anything without authority. That's exactly what has happened here. When some critic or other chose to say that Priors Park was not a priory, but was named after some quite modern man named Prior, nobody really tested the theory at all. It never occurred to anybody repeating the story to ask if there was any Mr. Prior, if anybody had ever seen him or heard of him. As a matter of fact, it was a priory, and shared the fate of most priories. That is, the Tudor gentleman with the plume simply stole it by brute force, 
and turned it into his own private house. He did worse things, as usual here. But the point here is that this is how the trick works, and the trick works in the same way in the other parts of the tale. The name of this district is printed Holinwall in all the best maps produced by the scholars, and they allude lightly, not without a smile, to the fact that it was pronounced Hollywell by the most ignorant and old-fashioned of the poor. But it is spelled wrong and pronounced right. Do you mean to say, asked Crane quickly, that there really was a well? There is a well, said Fisher, and the truth lies at the bottom of it. As he spoke, he stretched out his hand and pointed toward the sheet of water in front of him. The well is under the water somewhere, he said, and this is not the first tragedy connected with it. The founder of this house did something which his fellow ruffians very seldom did, something that had to be hushed up even in the anarchy of the pillage of the monasteries. The well was connected with the miracles of some saint, and the last prior that guarded it was something like a saint himself. Certainly he was something very like a martyr. He defied the new owner and dared him to pollute the place, till the noble, in a fury, stabbed him and flung his body into the well, whither, after four hundred years, it has been followed by an heir of the usurper, clad in the same purple and walking the world with the same pride. But how did it happen, demanded Crane, that for the first time Bulmer fell in at that particular spot? Because the ice was only loosened at that particular spot by the only man who knew it, answered Hornfisher. It was cracked deliberately with the kitchen chopper at that special place, and I myself heard the hammering and did not understand it. The place had been covered with an artificial lake, if only because the whole truth had to be covered with an artificial legend. But don't you see that it is exactly what those pagan nobles would have done, to desecrate it with a sort of heathen goddess, as the Roman emperor built a temple to Venus on the Holy Sepulchre? But the truth could still be traced out by any scholarly man determined to trace it. And this man was determined to trace it. What man? asked the other, with a shadow of the answer in his mind. The only man who has an alibi, replied Fisher. James Haddo, the antiquarian lawyer, left the night before the fatality, but he left that black star of death on the ice. He left abruptly, having previously proposed to stay, probably, I think, after an ugly scene with Bulmer at their legal interview. As you know yourself, Bulmer could make a man feel pretty murderous, and I rather fancy the lawyer had himself irregularities to confess, and was in danger of exposure by his client but it's my reading of human nature that a man will cheat in his trade, but not in his hobby. Addo may have been a dishonest lawyer, but he couldn't help being an honest antiquary. When he got on the track of the truth about the holy well, he had to follow it up. He was not to be bamboozled with newspaper anecdotes about Mr. Pryor and a hole in the wall. He found out everything, even to the exact location of the well. And he was rewarded if being a successful assassin can be regarded as a reward. And how did you get on the track of all this hidden history? asked the young architect. A cloud came across the brow of Horn Fisher. I knew only too much about it already, he said. And after all, it's shameful for me to be speaking lightly of Paul Bulmer, who has paid his penalty. But the rest of us haven't. 
I dare say every cigar I smoke and every liqueur I drink comes directly or indirectly from the harrying of the holy places and the persecution of the poor. After all, it needs very little poking about in the past to find that hole in the wall, that great breach in the defences of English history. It lies just under the surface of a thin sheet of sham information and instruction, just as the black and blood-stained well lies just under the floor of shallow water and flat weeds. Oh, the ice is thin, but it bears. It is strong enough to support us when we dress up as monks and dance on it, in mockery of the dear quaint old Middle Ages. They told me I must put on fancy dress, so I did put on fancy dress, according to my own taste and fancy. I put on the only costume I think fit for a man who has inherited the position of a gentleman, and yet has not entirely lost the feelings of one. In answer to a look of inquiry, he rose with a sweeping and downward gesture. Sackcloth, he said, and I would wear the ashes as well, if they would stay on my bald head. End of chapter. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.